Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What is the run brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl growing up? You know, it was Adidas. I was also a basketball player. So the high top Adidas was, you know, pretty much the cat's meow. But I also will say that as I think back about that, it also makes me respect Nike because at that point in time, Nike was kind of a niche player and they've done dramatic things around their brand and their permission. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Suzanne Kunkel, a principal in Deloitte Consulting, LLC, and the chief marketing officer of Deloitte. Deloitte is one of the largest and oldest business-to-business enterprises in the world. Founded some 175 years ago, now with roughly 330,000 plus employees and about $50 billion in revenue across its many business services. Deloitte's stated purpose is to make an impact that matters in the world, and I have experienced that personally. I worked with Deloitte when I was at P&G and continue to partner with them on many initiatives. Deloitte has been the exclusive sponsor of this podcast since its inception. My guest, Suzanne, is a colleague and a friend. Suzanne has been at Deloitte for about 28 years and over those years has had a boatload of roles and responsibilities. She's a graduate of the University of Colorado Boulder, lives now in San Francisco, and like me, is an avid tennis player and fan. This is my conversation with Deloitte's Suzanne Kunkel. Suzanne, welcome to the CMO Podcast. You have been on the CMO Podcast before in a unique session. Do you remember that episode? Of course I remember. It was the time when I discovered how it is much more difficult to interview someone than to be interviewed. I totally agree with that. Suzanne, for our listeners, the only episode we've done now, like 220 episodes of this show, and I was interviewed once and you were the interviewer. And you were a fantastic interviewer. And I've learned in my research on you, Suzanne, that if you didn't love consulting so much, you would either be a talk show host or a tennis player. So I want to hear about both of those. Why a talk show host? Where did that come from? And why a tennis player? Well, okay. Well, the tennis player is easier. 
I, I absolutely, and we share this passion, but I absolutely love the sport of tennis. I always have. I was a three-sport participant in high school, but tennis was always the sport that I wanted to practice. I would hit against, you know, almost everything. I used to hit a uh, against my garage, which my garage had a pattern on it. So it was like <laughs> <laughs> modern art. I was just always so starved for, um, for playing tennis. I certainly was not good enough for it, but in, in my dreams, that would have been a fun profession. Um, and then the talk show host is actually interesting because there are really three things that I like about that profession in general. The first is the humanity of it. So I really like the notion of pulling out of the person that you're interviewing their best and their emotion and their lessons in life. Um, I really like the informative nature of it. I think um, having more access to voices uh, generally is a really good thing for all of us. And then I do like the fact that, um, you know, it's it's sort of better together, right? There's a relationship aspect to it that, you know, there's, there's the magic of the dance, right? Which is fun and interesting. So if we were to launch you in a talk show uh, format, what would the focus be? Would it be entertainment? Would it be sports? Would it be business? Would it be politics? What do you think you would like to unpack? It's probably not the most exciting, but it would need to be business. Um, and I would mm-hmm. I would do it sort of at the intersection of um, strategy, creativity and transformation, because I think that's what we need the most at these times. Now, Suzanne, we could talk today about so many important and interesting things, and we will. I mean, I've known you for many years now. We've worked together on projects at Deloitte for years, including this podcast. But the lens you have on the world, I think, is super interesting, right? You're the CMO of one of the world's largest and most admired consulting companies. And it's actually more than a consulting company, but we'll just call it that for now. You work with, I think, 500 of the Fortune 500. Deloitte is in almost every company in the world in some capacity. You oversee so much interesting research, which I always look forward to. You are, you know, a pioneer with your CMO Next Generation Academy, which you hold every year, this three-day leadership program, which I think is mind-blowing. You're in the AMA, ANA CMO Growth Council. So the people you meet, the information you're looking at, the gang you hang out with, I think is super interesting. So I'd like just to start this podcast with Just an overall, you know, what are you, Suzanne, kind of seeing out there? Well, thank you. And thank you for the kind words, both about me and uh, and Deloitte. It is a big question. So why don't I throw out a couple of things and we can figure out which one you want to riff off of. You know, one of the things that I have been really struck with over the last multiple years is I believe that we'll look back and see that a pretty fundamental leadership paradigm changed dramatically over the last several years. And I think it's really exciting and really positive and particularly exciting and positive because I believe that both females and diverse individuals naturally gravitate to, you know, their muscles around this um, leadership um, paradigm are stronger, you know, whether it was in the initial days of COVID, whether it was then, you know, reactions to a lot of the um, the events that happened in the, on the social and the societal frontier. And then now as we uh, are reacting every day to different economic, you know, hints and data, 
um, I believe that we fundamentally changed and leaders that did exceptionally well in those times were the leaders that could come to their people and say, I am making this decision for the following reasons and to have it really grounded in data and fact and the why of the decision um, so that the what could change all the time. And the part that I find so interesting about it was that it was a very different leadership paradigm because it wasn't the omniscient leader from above saying, I know exactly where we're going. I know exactly what we're doing. Like our CEO was really good about saying, I don't know where this thing is going. I will tell you what we're seeing today and the reasons why we're making this decision. And tomorrow, if we see something different, we'll make a different decision. And I think we're only starting now to see how that will unfold. I think that the need for collaboration has never been higher amongst the C-suite. And, you know, those words are getting a bit trite, uh, but I do believe that we're at a point where problems just simply can't be solved through, you know, one one set of voices or one set of levers, if you will, within the organization. Um, And then the, the last thing very specifically for CMOs is in most organizations, you know, as you mentioned, Jen, we we have the next gen CMO Academy. We also do a lot of um, what we call transition labs for CMOs that are coming into their roles. And the one thing that I would say is that, um, again, for CMOs, the interest and respect for the role of marketing I believe is very, very high. Now that's the positive side. You know, the darker side to that is the expectations around it are also incredibly high as well. And the understanding hasn't caught up with the expectation. But I do think that if we can find a way to sort of lean into that opening and that opportunity, you know, I think there's just a lot of healthy interest and respect for the role that marketing will play in the coming years. There's a lot in that, Suzanne. I want to start with the CMO comment you made. Uh, what, what do you think has happened to create those conditions? You know, I know years ago we had a lot of discussions about marketing doesn't have a seat at the table. They're not in the important discussions. It's seen more as a creative function and a brand function. And the scope of the job often was relatively narrow. And I agree with you that has changed and the respect and interest in marketing and brand building, I think is higher than I've ever seen it in my career. So what do you think has been the catalyst for that? Why do you think that it has evolved to that over the time I have been working and the time that that you also have been in an active career? There's probably three things that have changed. The first one has been like just the core foundation of marketing has changed. 10 years ago, the MarTech stack was separate from the rest of the organization. Mm -hmm. The language we used was separate from the organization. You know, to your point, the data and um, support and the actual proof about what we could achieve was either non-existent or very spotty. Right. And so I think all of those things have changed dramatically and have brought marketing in Um, and into sort of the well-established fabric of the organization. I think the second thing is people really respect 
that brand adds resiliency to organizations that's really important. And that brand is really important to customers and their loyalty to an organization. But it's as important for people and talent reasons. Right. And and for sure, all of our employees are saying we have to believe in the brand of the organization to stay and to be engaged, et cetera, et cetera. And then last but not least, you know, we've pivoted a lot of the marketing activities to not only you know, not only support the brand side of things, but also really be instrumental in growth at Deloitte. You know, one of the things that I'm fond of saying is that we're looking at covering more of the market um, at scale because we, you know, we are a very large organization. We have a very complex product set. And so marketing and sales working together can do that exceptionally well. So I think those three things have changed really the way people think about marketing. You do a lot of research at Deloitte about CMOs and about their jobs, and you do an annual marketing trend study. And I know one thing, and this may be, this piece of data may be a year too old, but I suspect it still holds true. I remember one of the findings was that the CMOs were the least confident of the leaders in the C-suite. What do you think we could do to address that? Why is it that way? Is it because the job is so dynamic? And what could those people who are listening to the show who'd like to build their confidence as a senior marketing leader, what can they do to address that? You know, there were two fascinating things that came out of that report that was um, we do a global marketing trends report every year and um, and they were they were inextricably linked. So this confidence notion was really critical. And basically it said the following when, you know, one of the things that I love about that marketing trends report and I use it myself is that the intent of it is to we actually pull other members of the C-suite. We don't just talk to marketers. Mm-hmm. So you get sort of a, a broader voice about how others are seeing marketing. And again, as you mentioned, the the overall finding was that the other members of the C-suite were more confident in the CMO and what the CMO capabilities, you know, how critical they were to the future of the firm than the CMO was. And then inextricably linked with that was that the CMO was the executive in the C-suite that was least likely to collaborate. And, you know, when I first read that, I was like, hold on, are we sure? Like, can we go back and really push on that? Because when you think about the personalities of CMOs, like I have never called another CMO and said, you know, could I run some ideas by you or would you be willing to, you know, help me think through this. And I have never been told no. I haven't even ever been told like, yes, but it'll be six months before I might be able to free up time, right? So it was a really fascinating finding for me personally and then and for sure for our client base, but they're inextricably linked. And and one of the things that I always try to do in my own role and then as I work to help other people problem solve is to really make sure that you're collaborating enough with the other members of the C-suite because it then helps people to understand where you're coming from and to look out for each other um, and then start to really mirror um, how things can be better together, right? And I think that is critical as we go into best case, rocky economic times, worst case, you know, very significant economic times. And I was I was doing a panel the other day. And what I what I what my advice was to CMOs is to, you know, spend some time right now 
deeply understanding the what the business signals are seeing and what the strategy is in the three month, six month, 12 month time period. And you do that best when you talk to the other members of the C-suite and then you come up with, um, you know, set your agenda, but then make sure that there's agreement on what that agenda looks like, how it fits into the strategy and how collectively you'll measure that outcome. You talked a few minutes ago about this new leadership paradigm that kind of was accelerated or amplified during the pandemic. And some people gravitate toward that better than others. And it really is about the honesty that you spoke about from your CEO. I don't know what to do right now. I don't know what's going on. We need everyone's ideas. In a way, it's uh, it's making vulnerability, which we've talked a lot about on this show, making vulnerability something that is okay and that uh, it's okay not to have all the answers as long as you're seeking to get the questions right and then the right answers. What do you think is the biggest new skill set we need to all develop as this leadership paradigm has shifted? Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that I would just make sure that came out of my words, right, is that he did he did have action and he had a plan, but he led with the fact that, you know, what we were seeing that led to that action and plan. Um, but the but to your question very specifically, you know, I would argue that it's actually listening, that listening's the new skill set that we really need to hone. And we've always talked a lot about listening to our people and listening to our our clients or customers, but I don't know that we really have. You know, you've been, again, as you mentioned to the CMO next gen, and we've done some things around improv there where you have to listen to what somebody's saying to be able to then take it to new places. Um, you know, a lot of us and myself included, that's that's a new skill set because oftentimes we're listening so that we can, you know, know when they're going to pause so we can in- <laughs> inject our our point of view into that, into that gap. So I do think listening both um, and listening really broadly, one of the best things for us in COVID was that it shut down some of our senses, but awakened other parts. So we did have a preference for physically being together, both with our people and with our clients. And when that was shut down, we had to learn very dramatically different ways to listen to what people were telling us. And, and that's been just really both fun and effective because the other thing that I think was an unlock with COVID is that we could be more inclusive. We could hear more voices. We could include more voices when we weren't constrained by the physical nature of, of things unfolding. We all should be more like talk show hosts, right? You have to listen to be a good talk show host. Yes. No, I I mean that. I think I've become a better listener because of this show, you know, because you have to be comfortable with asking a question and just listening. And I worked on that on this show because I grew up in a culture at PNG where it was important that you did get your ideas across. It was a competitive arena for ideas and meetings were like really, really hard to get your voice heard. So you, you kind of developed this skill of, of, uh, being very proactive with your point of view. And I think that's good to some extent, but if you're not listening, you're not learning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Jim, you know, you talk a lot to CMOs. I would love your take on sort of this whole confidence collaboration. Like what are you, what are you seeing? Yeah, I think they're a little bit insecure. 
right? Because I think it is a discipline which is so fast moving. I mean, all disciplines are fast moving, but I think this one especially, you know, look at even that, that the partnerships we try to create as CMOs, those are really dynamic these days. You know, people are insourcing creative talent, uh, going going outside much more selectively. You know, a lot of the big big companies they partner with, the platform companies, are looking a little bit shaky these days for multiple reasons. You know, the third party cookies going away, the importance of first party. I mean, the job is just so darn dynamic, and I think that's one reason. There's there's a, a strong imposter syndrome with most CMOs, even the ones we consider the best. So I think that's one reason that maybe um, the confidence is a bit lower. The collaboration is also one that that kind of uh, mystified me too. I read the same report that you did. Obviously, it's your report, and I had to think about that one. And I'm I'm just hypothesizing now, but I, I just wonder if it's the demands on people's time now are so so strong because things are changing so quickly. And I think that may be part of the issue. I'm not sure it's bad intent, but they just may not be as available and as present as some of the other cross-functional partners. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's good. And that's helpful. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So I want to talk about one thing I know you're passionate about and your company is passionate about, and that is this uh, mega trend on climate change. Mm-hmm. Right? And you've highlighted this in a lot of your research. And I know at Deloitte, you've rethought a lot of things based on being a positive force in the world. And I just like to get you to talk about that a little bit and maybe the broader learning from that. I talk to a lot of CMOs, of course, you do as well. I hear everyone, almost in everyone's strategies, we, we do have plans and initiatives to address climate change at almost every business, every segment, every category. Even some CMOs have it in their job title. You know, the Unilever CMO uh, did for many years. I just interviewed a senior person in marketing at HP uh, he has sustainability in his job title. So I'd just like you to talk a bit about what is your thinking about this? Should sustainability be in every marketer's strategy? And what could others learn from what you're doing at Deloitte? 
We're a 177-year-old brand, um, and I feel very fortunate that we've always been very purpose-minded. Um, and prior to COVID, actually, we did some work around where did we believe we could show up more significantly with, you know, authentically and with real outcome. You know, we talk a lot about impact that matters um, mm -hmm. to our people, our clients, our communities, and now our planet. Um, and as you mentioned, we initially had to do the hard work because while it's easy to say, it's actually pretty hard to do. And again, this was pre-COVID. Immediately, it popped up that if we were going to be a force for good on this, we needed to rethink really the way we were delivering projects because we couldn't be on planes to the level that we were and be authentic about being concerned about our carbon footprint. Um, and so we did the hard work to actually look at what that looked like and what needed to change about our own behaviors. So I would I would say that if you want to be present on the sustainability, you have to really take a hard look at the big and small things. You know, another thing for us was we have 415,000 people around the globe and we were having at any given point in time, like literally hundreds of thousands of meetings. And if we were getting those catered with single use water bottles, Again, that means we couldn't be authentic about caring about sustainability. From a marketing perspective, I do believe that we have, you know, a click down. Now, I don't think I believe that CMOs get into trouble if they're a singular voice on some of these big changes, but I for sure think they can lead the conversation. And I do believe that a lot of the marketing practices, you know, have if we, if we really push hard on it, They've got sustainability implications that we need to be careful about, right? All of the things that were branded merch, right, has, you know, we have to be really careful about the fact that there's a reason for those things being introduced into the world. And I really do believe that, that again, the CMO can lead the conversation around the C-suite table, but everybody needs to think about what they're doing through the actions that they own. Um, at Deloitte, we're, we obviously have... Um, the advantage and um, the opportunity of helping our clients really think about this and what that looks like in what time frame. So we're doing a lot of work around how organizations can start to think about what their strategy is and then how that shows up in the actions they take every day. That's positive. I mean, it's really good, but I'm, I'm hearing it. I mean, I'm, it's been in the zeitgeist for many years, but I think it's reached a real tipping point, which is good for Absolutely. many reasons. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one of your roles is thought leadership at Deloitte, which is kind of what we've been spending this podcast on, but you're also the CMO of one of the world's largest and most diverse B2B companies. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about, you've had a lot of roles at Deloitte over your career. You're now the CMO of a really, really leading edge, very large scale services firm. So tell us a bit about what you love about your job, Suzanne. You know, if we looked at your diary, I ask this question a lot. What insights would we have? And then maybe a little bit about what drives you crazy about the job. I mean, I think it's important to understand both of those, what you love about it and what some of the challenges are. Um, if you know me well, I I um, great believer and I say this frequently that I believe that what you like most about an individual or an environment is inextricably linked with what you like least about it. Mm -hmm. um, if you do think about um, what I love about the job and the roles that I've had, and certainly it shows up in my world as the CMO, I love 
what the firm stands for. And, you know, again, the power of the brand and the way that that's embedded in everything from the way the leaders make decisions to the way we hire, the way we, you know, put our clients first, the way we, um, you know, do our problem solving. I'm no different than most um, B2B CMOs in the sense that, um, and you know this, Jim, through some of the work that we've done, we are going through a pretty major transformation of the way we think about marketing. And there are some very specific things in the brand space that we're trying to do differently. Um, On the positive side, um, the power and the strength of our brand is very, very significant. But what we're really trying to do is round the edges around loyalty. And we've historically spent a lot of time at the brand level talking about what we do versus who we are and why we're different. And so we're trying to even that out um, so that people know that who Deloitte is, And because, you know, at the end of the day, we do most things. So really making sure that people understand, you know, kind of who we are and and why we're different is important from a loyalty perspective. And then in order to be able to do that and for the businesses and specifically to be comfortable that we take a little bit of that language system out of what we do, then we needed to build a much more significant and robust demand generation capability. So we need to be able to really nurture um you know, demand and relationships at scale in in new ways. And again, COVID for us was we were trying to do this actively pre-COVID. In COVID, it became very clear in our partners' minds why this was critical and would help them. And then we um, are looking at majorly rethinking the way we do internal activation, because again, I mentioned that we have 415,000 people and that um, if if they're targeted and equipped and, and helped to have the right messages in the marketplace, that's a really powerful tool. Um, without it, we are very entrepreneurial. We are very innovative. And so without sort of harnessing the strength of that, you it quickly turns into a weakness. You know, simplistically, last but not least, we have world class businesses. So we needed a world class um, marketing organization to be able to really work hand in hand with that. So those are lots of things that I'm spending a lot of um, time and motion on. And and um, again, I think most B2B CMOs are grappling with some element of that. Um, what I found was I often get asked the question of like, well, could you only do a couple of those things? And because the ecosystem and the machinery mm-hmm. works the way it is, I actually felt like we had to do all of them differently um, to be able to make any of them work correctly. You know, a lot of CMOs, as I do, you're in a you're in a big B2B role. Do you feel like there is a substantial difference between a B2B CMO and a B2C CMO? Business to consumer, business to business. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I often laugh with my B2C brethren um, or I guess sisters about, um, you know, imagine if your products could walk and talk. So I do think there are some differences. For example, I believe that as B2B marketers, we've been slow to take advantage of doors that our B2C peers have opened. You know, you think about all of the, um, you know, the influencers, you think about the data, you think about the even the, you know, ratings up or down, like dislike, like all of those kinds of things that we've been slower to incorporate in the way we think about marketing. 
And so I think as B2B marketers, we have to be really careful that we don't learn the lessons that I think a lot of times our B2C um, peers are stronger and faster and have been around those environments. But I do think that um, there are some differences. For example, I think in B2B, you have to be really careful about the balance between brand and demand. Um, certainly the the timeframes that you're dealing with are pretty significantly different. There are for sure differences, but I think you have to be careful in sort of saying over rotating either on the differences or the similarities. You had a lot of roles at Deloitte and I had a lot of roles at P&G before I became CMO. You had, you know, you were working with clients for many, many years. You still do, but this is a bit of a different role. Now you're CMO. How is this job different and what leadership skills or muscles did you need to flex or build, you know, as you came into this role? Yeah. So interestingly enough, as you mentioned, I did come up through the business. I sometimes joke that this is my penance for all those times I, you know, (laughs) in a frustrated voice said to my clients, just do this. It's not that hard. And, you know, now I'm like, oh, actually, it's quite, quite difficult. But I grew up through the, the business. And so when I came into this role, I felt like I had street cred. And I overestimated that quite candidly when I first came into the role. And I see this again time and time with the transition labs that we do where a CMO will come in and think that they can kind of, you know, either make decisions independently or sort of outshine some of the business unit leadership and that sort of thing. And and I learned that the hard way. Um, and it was surprising to me, again, because of 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 the fact that I had come from the business. But it's been a really important and I talked to a lot of my peers about this is that, again, this notion of the collaboration and that we're better together and that any decision I make, the more people that understand why I'm making that decision and that participate in it, it actually means that I can make those decisions faster. They're richer decisions, but it just, you know, was a new kind of skill set set and muscle set that I had to, to really lean into. So I think, I think that's a big piece. The second piece that's hard in, again, it has a really wonderful and magical element to it, but it is hard if you're trying to maintain consistency and coherence around the brand in the marketplace is this, you know, we are a large partnership. We are very innovative and entrepreneurial. There is sort of zero barriers to entry with new product introductions. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that that's cohesive and people know that we can be supportive of that innovation, but we do want to take a look at it from a client's perspective and really be cohesive and coherent in the marketplace about these offerings is always a balance. Um, you know, one of the things that is really great about Deloitte is we're very good at building and developing leaders. And we believe that that vibrancy is what's kept the firm, you know, cutting edge for so very, very many years. That also means that leaders are coming in and out of roles really quickly, right? So if you think about as opposed to normal or other corporations, right, we're we're rotating leaders about every three to four years at the outset. Mm-hmm. Again, there is an internal sort of natural disposition to want to then pop up as a new leader and do things differently. Um, And so we're always trying to make sure that that can be we can lean into that, but that we do it in service of what the clients will see 
the thing I always say is we need to be careful. We don't try to differentiate from each other, that we keep really solid about differentiating from our competitors while we incorporate the vitality and the vibrancy and the innovation of the new leaders that are coming into the system. And that's a pretty sophisticated leadership challenge, which you just described. Yes. And I think it is, you know, I, I came up through the business as well before I was CMO at P&G. And so I had street cred, but I agree with you. I probably overestimated the importance of that. It's a, re- it's a different job. And it's great that you have respect across the company as I did. I had to learn myself that when you work horizontally versus vertically, it can be maybe even more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a different kind of leadership skill set and style and collaboration is so fundamental and listening. And, and, uh, that's, it's, if you don't do that, forget it. Yeah. And really talking about the why, um, and you know, this is why we're making these decisions and then figuring out if there's agreement on the why, because if you, if you can lock on the why, then people are more likely to give me the ability to, to, to execute and do the what, what audience are we trying to get to? What do we want them to do? How do we want them to feel? Then it allows the businesses to sort of let us use our, you know, what I like to talk a lot about, use our superpowers and our magic that is incremental and complementary to the business. Um, because then we can get back together and look at the data and sort of say, like, are we are we achieving those outcomes? Because if we don't do that, then the business likes to get involved with sort of making the plan and that you get into kind of dangerous territory, right? Because, uh, you know, but people often underestimate sort of the discipline of marketing and the strategic Mm -hmm. thinking that goes behind it. And so you have to be really careful. You don't accidentally invite people in to decisions about, you know, should this be a podcast and should I do five or seven of them? You brought up your transition labs that you offer to CMOs who are transitioning into a new role, and you've done those with dozens and dozens and dozens of leaders. So I'd, I'd like to hear you, Suzanne, talk about your if there's one piece of learning for those who are in transition to a new role, actually, whether it be in marketing or another discipline, is there a theme that comes out of these transition labs? Is there one really uber leadership skill or characteristic that if, if they don't embrace, they will fail? Um, yes and no. So, and by the way, we've done hundreds of them. So, you know, for those of you that aren't familiar with it um, and we, I, we love to do them. I learn from them every time I do them. I had one when I came into my role, um, but essentially it is a very highly facilitated way to get your plan in place as you come into a new role. And so there's some initial things that we do around hopes and fears. And we not only talk to the CMO about that, but we talk to peers. Um, We do a lot of work around, um, you know, do you have the team in place that you need to have the team? Do you have the support of peers that you need that are important to your your mission? There's a whole piece around what do you think you need to get done in what time frame? And I would say there's probably four things that are very clear. You know, one we talked a lot about it is the confidence is typically very high and really making sure that the CMO is confident enough to like lean into that and take advantage of that is a very significant one. The second piece of that that's very significant is the notion of really collaborating with your peers to to help make sure that the strength of of the work is there. 
Um, another thing, most people are trying to bite off more than they possibly can get done. And so rather than doing a little bit of everything, it's actually really important when you first come into a role to make sure you're doing visible things at the times you say them. So you won't get credit for having started a hundred things. You will get credit even if it's just doing two things initially. As we all know, I think the fourth thing is, is really making sure you have the right team, that it's the right, um, it's the right, um, set of voices, that it's the right set of skill sets, and that they really understand the vision and where you're going so that they can make all the small incremental decisions of every action taken every day to be in support of what you want to get done. You do a lot of work in transformation at Deloitte, and I want you to reflect on something that you've been involved with personally, which I think is pretty remarkable. Several years ago, you led what Deloitte calls, I believe, the Women's Initiative in Consulting. And the original goal was to significantly increase the percentage of women in key roles and key senior roles at Deloitte. And that seems to have been, from what I've read and and talked with, with some of your peers, very, very successful. What was it about that transformation, that change process that was so successful? What could others learn from everyone in a large organization at some level is trying to lead change and transformation. You did that and you did it really, really well, but I'd like you to reflect on that one and what you learned, what others could benefit from. Thank you for asking about that. I feel very privileged that I had that role when I had that role. Um, and I oftentimes pull from the experiences that I got with that. Um, so I think there's three things that I would say I learned from that most significantly. So the first thing was, is to really break it down into, you know, we had this sort of amorphous goal, which was to be the place where the best women choose to be, right? And there were some very specific things in there. The notion that we respected the fact that people had choices. Um, And so what we did was I got commitment to what the way that that would actually show up in what, you know, what, how would we measure the outcomes and whether we were on track? And I think that's the biggest thing, regardless of what transformation you're doing, is to actually then break it down into what will we then see in what time frames, and do we have agreement on the, the, on the, the notion that that's success? The other thing that we did, which was interesting about that whole thing, was we did that in a way where we said, if we do that right, and we do it with the right sense of transparency, we will also get the best people. You know, anytime we veered into something where we it wouldn't be attractive to a male colleague, we said we're probably not at the right space. Mm-hmm. There are certainly things that are more present, particularly at that time in our in our female um, colleagues, like childcare, like, um, you know, family friendly type policies and things like that. But we knew that our men wanted that as well. They may not have been as vocal. They may not have had as much of the shouldering of that responsibility, but it made the whole workplace stronger. Because if you're doing it right, it sort of helps everybody, not just the people that are involved in the work that, that that's being that's being done. The third thing that was really important to us being successful about that was we were really committed to it. 
you know, that meant that I reported to the CEO in that role. It meant that we had a lot of data to really be transparent about whether or not we were making the, the right decisions, but then also getting the right outcomes. So it wasn't like, hey, are we trying? It was like, yeah, are we trying and succeeding at this thing? And so for us, when I came into the role, we were pretty good at a leadership level, but we weren't when we really sort of peeled back the onion on the data. We weren't that great at what I would call market facing roles. So the people that were running, you know, kind of the P&Ls, the people that were running major accounts. And the reason why that was so important was because it was sort of the backbone of, you know, how we showed up for clients it's really hard to get more family friendly work policies if the accounts aren't really invested in that and having those conversations with our clients. So we sort of said, like, these are the roles that we have to get right. And they're actually more important than some of the other roles. So, again, you know, I talked about it with the transition lab, but there are certain things where being really careful that it's not like, you're trying to do it sort of everywhere. You're trying to do it in places that have impact that will ultimately pull through being able to do it in more places. All right, Suzanne, we're going to shift into the creative brief to end this discussion. And my first question is, what is the one key strength of your tennis game? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Is I have um, an inside out volley that's very good. All right. Now, what's one key strength in your leadership game? And how you, Suzanne, lead. The thing I always say is that I have an uncanny ability to look at both sides of an issue and understand it. That doesn't mean I believe in both sides, but it, it means that I respect both sides. And therefore, hopefully I can express my argument in a way that can be heard by the other side. What is the run brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl growing up? You know it was Adidas. I was also a basketball player. So the high top Adidas was, you know, pretty much uh, the cat's meow. But I also will say that as I think back about that, it also makes me respect Nike because at that point in time, Nike was kind of a niche player and they've done dramatic things around their brand and their permission. What is the one most memorable moment in your storied career at Deloitte? The most memory. Well, the good news is I have many. Um, one of the ones that I've talked about recently is, um, you know, our uh, the woman that runs our um, internal agency, which we call the Green Dot Agency. We were on a, um, a leadership team meeting and we were going through a lot of the work that we were doing and, we, you know, we were going through the transformation. And I'm asking a lot of my team because we have, you know, the demand for our work has gone up just tremendously. The complexity of that work has gone up tremendously and we're trying to change materially how we do it. And um, her name is Kim McNeil Downs and she she and the process of reporting out on some of the strength of the outcomes that we had started crying. And she basically said, I'm just so proud of our team because we are not only achieving great things, but we have shown up for each other. We have each other's backs and we're kind of leaving everything out on the field. And it was such an amazing sort of human side to what we were doing. And the fact that she cared that deeply that she would be, you know, moved to tears. I just, I, I love that. And I love that about her. 
that's the culture we all try to create, right? That says it all. What is the one book, movie, series, or podcast that has inspired you recently? Recently? Um, I will tell you the book that I read recently that's given me a lot of pause. And I'm reading it with my son, Max, who's 14. Um, but it's Colin Jost's autobiography. And it's um, called A A Very Punchable Mm -hmm. Face. And one of the things that I think is so amazing about the story he tells is that how his commitment to growth and development, you know, he has a very big job and has had a very big job for quite some time at SNL. And what you don't know about him is he's always trying to hone his craft around stand up um, comedy. And um, I always joke that the only time my son finds me funny is when I tell him that I would like to be a stand-up comedian. But meanwhile, Colin Jost has this big job and he's at night and on weekends doing stand-up comedy to try to hone that craft and kind of keep his game up and that sort of thing. So, um, so I love that book. I'd, I'd encourage everybody to read it. I got it from my wife for Christmas. Have you read it? I have not read it. She has, she loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I thought there was so And of course, it's funny. So I I love that as well. Who has been the one most inspiring person in your life? Again, I feel really fortunate at Deloitte to be surrounded by a lot of really great leaders. I think if you look at the longevity of my life, it would absolutely be my parents. I learned very important lessons from them. They are both amazing people. um, And I couldn't be more thankful to grow up with that, you know, unconditional love, the, um, you know, first and foremost, the tradition of giving to others and sort of asking always, what can, you know, how can I help you? Um, And they do that for lots and lots of people. And they always believed in me. And I am super lucky because I had a mom as well that thought that, you know, sexy and strength were very um, entwined. And so I love the fact that she really leaned into things that were female, but believed that that actually was the source of her strength. And the most important thing I learned from my father, which, um, you know, I really resented this growing up was my father was always like I would come home from school. And if he if he happened to be there, I'd be like, you will not believe what happened today. You won't believe what Jenny did. Um, And he would say, uh, you know, like, well, let's talk about what you could have done differently. And I was like, hold on. You missed the whole point of this story. It was about what Jenny did to me. And he would say, you know, I'm not Jenny's father, so I actually can't help you with that part of it. What I can do is help you so that you, you know, you show up differently or you avoid Jenny or you have a different uh, reaction to what Jenny does. It's a very powerful life lesson. A recent guest on this podcast recently talked about you can't control what people do to you, but you can control your reaction to it. Absolutely. All right. We're going to end with you have one question for me. What would that be? That's a great question. If you looked into your crystal ball and you talk again to hundreds and hundreds of CMO, what's the thing five years from now you think will be surprising to us about where marketing is in an organization? I think the scope will broaden. As we talked about earlier in this podcast, it has changed. It's going to continue to change. And I think you will see more integration and in some ways, more simplicity in organizational structures. So I, I think you will see whatever we call that person who is heading marketing, you will see a bigger and broader and even more important scope. 
you know, I, I know this is research that you have done with Can Lions. I mean, that the growth in chief growth officer titles in the last six years is something like 600%. I mean, I'm getting those numbers about right. That's a big change. And chief growth officer has a different remit than chief marketing officer. So I think you're, you're going to see the job become weightier and weightier and weightier in, in all the best ways. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I do, I do believe, I think that same thing. And I believe that what we'll, we will get better at is making sure that we're equipping every person in our organization to sort of be the brand and the demand ambassadors for the marketing organization. Yeah. Suzanne, I don't want this to end, but we are recording on Friday afternoon and I, and I have to let you get to a tennis match or a long walk or, or cocktail hour, whatever you're doing on your Friday evening. Uh, and my whole family's visiting this weekend. So we have lots of fun things planned, but this has been a gift. Thank you for sharing, you know, uh, everything about your job, your work, yourself. And it was, it was full of inspiration and full of lessons. And, uh, and thank you again. And thank you, by the way, for sponsoring this podcast, you and your team. It's been a great gift, I think, to, to uh, all of us. And I've just been fortunate to be the one that gets to ask the questions. But we have had so many wonderful people on the show, and it wouldn't be possible without you and your team. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And Jim, you know that I think you're the partner's partner with respect to your generosity and, and level of support and the way you really lean into making sure the relationship is good for all players involved. So um, thank you. Um, and it's always delightful to spend time with you. You always make me think harder and better about my environment. That was my conversation with Suzanne Kunkel. Three lessons from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, as you lead an organization, as you lead a team, always reinforce the why behind what you are doing. Suzanne talked about this multiple times in this session. If people understand the why, they will be on board and they will bring their best self and their creativity to their work. Second big takeaway, it's a simple one, but a powerful one the importance of listening. When I talked to Suzanne about some of her leadership strengths, listening was at the top of the list. We can't be great learners. We can't be close to our customers if we're not active listeners. And third takeaway, I loved what Suzanne talked about when I asked her about CMOs in transition. Deloitte has done hundreds of labs with CMOs who are in transition. There were four big lessons from her learning at the transition labs. Build your confidence early as a CMO, collaborate like crazy, Focus on a very few things and build the right team. Again, this is pretty fundamental advice, but if we don't do those four things, our likelihood of success is not very high. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.